On Sunday, August 15th, 2021, Afghan President Ashraf Ghani fled the country. As the Taliban rapidly advanced into the country's capital, the American-backed government there collapsed. In Kabul, chaos gripped the city as tens of thousands of people went into hiding or fled the city, with many trying to seek safety in or on evacuating American planes. Among them was Abdul Wahid Ahmad, a Binghamton alumni who served on the National Security Council until the government's collapse. Thankfully, Wahid was one of the lucky few to escape the country, and today I have the pleasure of getting to speak with him. NBC News has confirmed that the president, President Ghani of Afghanistan, has left the country. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani's departure signals the government has all but handed power to the Taliban. The question now is what happens next? Uh, we are back now with our rolling coverage of the situation in Afghanistan. The Taliban are saying they have ordered their fighters to enter the capital city of Kabul. There are images online coming out right now. Thank you. I'm very happy um, to have this conversation with you. Um, I actually started uh, the Binghamton MPA in fall 2016 and graduated in uh, May 2018. And after that, uh, after you know a few days, I left uh, and I went back uh, home to Afghanistan. So let's talk a little bit about your position in Afghanistan. You stated that prior to 2016, you had another post with the government, but when you returned in 2018, you were working for the National Security Council as the director, I believe. So, yeah. yeah tell us a little bit about that. Um, so, b b before coming to the U.S., uh, you know, I worked uh, with the government uh, still, but uh, the organization that I worked for. Uh, uh, the Independent Directorate of Local Governance, uh, that organization was primarily focused on governance and governing. Um, so uh, basically it was uh, an office of the national government to uh, manage governors, uh, you know, provide them with resources and support them uh, from the national government you know, from, from the center. Uh, but, and that's why I was so interested in, in pursuing a degree in public administration. And when I was done with my uh, public administration education in the U.S., and I went back, uh, and by, by, by the time that I was back, the security situation in my country was, you know, much uh, worse than the time that I left. Uh, so I thought maybe uh, if I go to the security sector, uh, I would be able to contribute more. So that's how I decided to join the uh, National Security Council and, um, and, 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 and worked at the National Security Council until uh, the government collapsed in August 2021. I think that's a very admirable, uh, admirable thing because you come from the United States after studying here for two years and you see, you evidently see the problems in the Afghan government where it's facing trouble. So it, it was, it's very cool to see you go directly into national security just to sort of help out there. Uh, so tell us please, 
with your role in the National Security Council, what were some of the responsibilities that you had? Uh, so the nature of uh, you know the National Security Council, uh, you know I, I I have to tell you a little bit about the institution, and then uh, when I will explain my role, it will make more sense. So the National Security Council is the uh, highest decision-making uh, forum in terms of um, national security, military, and foreign policy. In most of you know, most of the countries in the world, they, they, they have these, uh, this similar structure. And we also had uh, the same structure. And um, it's, you know, basically it's a presidential forum. It's part of the, uh, you know, the, the presidential uh, office where, you know, president the president and you know the principal members of the National Security Council they discuss um, policies and then those policies are developed. Um, and then in the meantime, there's a staff uh, to support uh, this council, the president and the National Security Council, um, technically and from a pol policy perspective. Um, I, you know, I worked more in the policy sector, and my role was more related to, um, you know, reforms, security sector reform, how to um, bring more efficiency and effectiveness in the security sector by, uh, you know, cutting the costs, uh, by um, making sure that um, we provide the necessary resources and logistics and uh, everything else that our soldier, soldiers need. Um, uh, that was part of uh, the things that I do. I also had some responsibilities in terms of assessments and analysis of, uh, you know, um, to name a few, like, uh, you know, assessing the drivers of conflict, you know, uh, at the sub-national level. Uh, what is it that's uh, causing more conflict and generating more conflict and causing more violence? Um, you know, what is it that causes more, you know, bad governance or, um, you know, causes a very bad relationship between the society and state? So those were the, the kind of things that uh, I did uh, with a team uh, when you know, during my time at NEC. Thank you for that. So without further ado, I think we have a good place right now to start going into questions about the situation in Afghanistan, uh, mm -hmm. provided the background that you have there. So I want to backtrack a little bit to when we were talking about your decision to join the National Security Council. Mm -hmm. So from how you established it, it sounded like Afghanistan prior to 2016 and Afghanistan when you returned in 2018 was a fairly different place. So were there any notable differences in Afghanistan's government after you returned in 2018? Uh, had anything changed since 2016 that might have concerned you or were there any um, developments with the Taliban that were especially concerning? Uh, so in 2016, when I left Afghanistan, um, I think a year before a new administration uh, took the charge of the country uh, and 
you know, my hope as a private citizen of Afghanistan at that time was that this new team will improve things. Um, and by the time I return, um, there will be progress on the economy, economy front, on security front, you know, things will improve. Um, there will be better security, uh, at least in Kabul. Uh, but by the time I returned uh, in 2018, the level of violence was unbearable. Uh, there were regular explosions in Kabul and we were losing more territory to the Taliban um, than the 2016. And Things also changed in the U.S. during my time because, you know, there was a presidential election and then a new administration was also in charge here. So uh, there were also developments in the political front as well, uh, because there were talks of the U.S., you know, diplomatically engaging the Taliban and there were talks of a potential negotiation with the group. So. The technical word here would be that, uh, you know, Afghanistan's strategic environment was uh, much more complex uh, and different than the time that I left. I'm glad that you uh, mentioned the relationship with the United States, because what I found when looking at this was there might have been some sort of correlation between how things changed in Afghanistan between 2016 and 2018 and how the Trump administration had recently taken control of the United States during that time. And to follow on that, I wanted to ask, how much of an effect do you believe American foreign policy had on Afghan politics? Were decisions made by American administrators that considered Afghan people and accounted for Afghan culture and independence? I think it's fair to say that the American foreign policy has significant influence in the region. And some of those decisions uh, that they make uh, impact, you know, individual countries uh, as well as uh, the regional order. In in Afghanistan, um, doesn't live in a vacuum. Um, So, and then uh, as is the case with all countries normally and by nature and naturally, the foreign policy decisions that are made, you know, usually they are based on the national interest of that country. Um, So it doesn't consider a lot of other factors uh, that are important to, uh, let's say, to a region or to a country. Um, But the U.S. uh, was our foundational partner uh, in Afghanistan, and um, they have provided a lot of support to the, uh, you know, to the people of Afghanistan and to the Afghan, uh, former Afghan government. And, uh, you know, the foreign policy decisions that were made, you know, by, by this time everyone knows about them, definitely had their, you know, consequences on the country. I think that plays well into how a large theme of the MPA program, at least 520, is that global globalization is a major factor and there's absolutely some evidence of here of this in the Afghanistan situation with how even domestic mm-hmm. policies in the United States and domestic interests might affect how we interact with Afghanistan so I'm really glad that you were able to sort of pay testament to that a bit 
-hmm. So on the topic of American intervention in Afghanistan, Afghanistan is no stranger to intervention in the past. It's seen it's a very fair share of invasions and occupations throughout its history. Uh, most recently, the British Empire invading and the Soviet Union invading. What do you think that Afghan resilience during these times says about Afghan independence? Should the United States have learned from this history and maybe taken a step back in trying to help maintain Afghanistan and let Afghans have more independence. And with the Taliban having taken control of the country recently, do you think that they're accounting for this history of independence and resilience against uh, foreign or more uninvited entities? Um, you know, as a student of uh, public policy, uh, I believe that societies should be, you know, societies should be able to have um, a say in what form of state they want to have. Uh, and Afghanistan, you know, Afghans, um, um, in the Afghan society um, definitely has a right to um, determine what kind of state uh, they want to have. Uh, and I believe in democracy and uh, peaceful transfer of power or peaceful, um, you know, you know, getting power through election I, uh, or uh, to some level like a national consensus. Um, I don't believe in a military takeover <clears throat> and hijacking of a country. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's not called liberation or um, uh, achieving freedom, but it's more, um, I think the technical term would be establishing a regime, uh, uh, you know, uh, with violence, um, you know, when, when politics is armed. Uh, so with armed politics, that does not mean liberation or freedom. You know, Afghanistan, uh, the international forces, including NATO, uh, the US and other countries, they had a presence there, diplomatic and security presence in Afghanistan. And that was based on an agreement with the democratically elected government of Afghanistan. Um, so I, I do not, I'm not sure if uh, we can call that an invasion or occupation. Um, and I don't remember the exact international term for that but it does, does not mean that you know uh, the taliban or right or they can uh, claim this uh, victory on behalf of the people of afghanistan because they represent a group within the country and uh, it's the reality that they have uh, now more military means than other groups, but that does not mean that they are the true representatives of uh, Afghanistan. Um, I think, um, you know, I don't agree with that. The entire answer made me really want to go to two separate questions, but I'm going to have to choose one over the other for now. Okay. Um, I believe one of these feeds directly into the other. So as we know, prior to the first uh, appearance of the Taliban and their takeover in Afghanistan in the 1990s, 
Afghanistan was a socialist republic. Now it's returned to being a Islamic republic. Tell me a little bit about the government of Afghanistan between the interim administration in 2001 to the Ashraf Ghani's cabinet. Like, did most Afghanistans view this government as the legitimate government of Afghanistan? Did they like this form of government? And could you really call it a democracy? I think uh, the government, pro, like the state, I, I would like to refer it as the state of, uh, you know, Islamic Republic of Afghanistan before August 2021, was the most, you know, democratic country comparing to its immediate neighbors. If you look at Pakistan or Iran or the Central Asian countries or China, Afghanistan was the most democratic country in that region with certain uh, democratic values practiced like the freedom of speech, you know, there was relative stability and there were equal uh, employment and education opportunities for men uh, and women in the country. Uh, that order is gone, and uh, the group that's responsible for, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the disaster is the Taliban. But I have to, uh, you know, I will be dishonest to uh, not say that there was a corrupt ecosystem of individuals uh, inside the government as well, and corruption was a major factor in the collapse you know, people getting exceptionally rich from the government uh, and from contracts provided by the international community. Uh, so uh, those influences and powers and interests, they were also as disruptive to the political order and state and democracy in Afghanistan as uh, other, uh, you know, violent groups that operated in the country. Um, the Afghan government uh, definitely had an issue. Um, more focused was uh, paid in, in urban centers in Kabul. And, um, you know, if I say that the villages were forgotten, sub-national population was forgotten, most of these decision makings, I would uh, be right. Uh, so the Afghan government had its issues. Um, corruption, you know, was one of that. Um, bad decisions and bad uh, calculations of its political leadership was an issue. Um, but there were also other factors and other issues that were regional and international as well. Yeah, that is very true that almost no political entity is flawless it's i mean people in the mpa program they try to teach us the best that we can to be good public administrators but it's very hard to really bring all this mm -hmm. into a real world scenario almost yeah. all the time these organizations political agencies they succumb to some sort of flaw so relating to the flaws of afghanistan's former government I want to talk a little bit to both the flaws and the merits of the Taliban, because it seems that your characterization of the Afghan government was a little metropolitan and city focused. And it seemed like the Taliban had a lot of their 
base or support or hid in more rural areas. So knowing this, how the Afghan government neglected more rural areas, do you think the Taliban have not necessarily legitimacy, but do they do anything about public administration correctly, or at least something that President Ghani's government did not do adequately? Well, uh, in order to understand uh, why groups like the Taliban are, um, you know, successful eventually in a country like Afghanistan, it is necessary to look at the history of uh, Afghanistan. So throughout, you know, since the inception of uh, our country, what happened is that groups like the Taliban, you know, with different labels and names, uh, have, you know, throughout the history, they have been able to uh, overthrow governments and status in Afghanistan. So, for example, now we have the Taliban, but a little bit further in our history, we had the Mujahideen and then if you go back, there are other groups as well who had you know, succeeded in overthrowing the government. So it is a trend throughout the, the, the history. And then governments and states that are established, you know, the, the state building projects that started in different periods of the history. At some point, they faced issues, they faced trouble. Uh, and that is because uh, the nature of the government that we usually establish in Afghanistan is very, very centralized. Uh, you know, power and resources are uh, like a zero-sum game. So if one group uh, wins, then everyone else in the country loses. And with that setting, a lot of Afghans, they think they are left out. So that's why, you know, and they have an infrastructure, social and resources throughout the country that any insurgency, you know, slash terrorist group can use. So the infrastructure is there, but then different groups with different labels and names use it. So it's not, um, you know, we cannot uh, conclude that this is a success for the Taliban. Um, because the Afghan uh, population support them, but uh, uh, simply because, you know, the Afghan government was also very centralized and heavily focused in Kabul, and they were unable to reach out to uh, villages, you know, districts and provinces. Yeah, as you and I have both learned in the MPA program, it's very important for public administrators to consider issues of equality and equity for people. Because if you eliminate the these differences between people, these inequalities between people, then you prevent the rise of groups like the Taliban and you sort of deny them the source that they need to grow. So as we've established, this is an incredibly complex issue. And as you stated, it's not solely the Taliban that brought about this it's far too early to really say who was directly responsible for the fall of the government but there were multiple factors uh, things are rarely two-sided or that simple there's always a lot of factors we have breaking news just into us after nearly two decades of war sources say u.s president joe biden will announce a withdrawal of u.s troops from afghanistan as I said in April, the 
United States did what we went to do in Afghanistan to get the terrorists to attack us on 9-11 and deliver justice to Osama bin Laden. We did not go to Afghanistan to nation build. And it's the right and the responsibility of Afghan people alone to decide their future and how they want to run their country. In the United States, the way that the fall of the Afghan government was depicted was very quick. It seemed that the United States President Biden stated that we'd be removing troops from the country and that almost immediately after that, the Taliban sprung into action, began taking cities and eventually arrived in Kabul and the government fell. Was this event truly as quick as people think or was it a longer process in the making? Yeah, so, you know, I remember, uh, to answer your question, uh, you know, I remember one uh, example of uh, disaster and public administration failure that we used a lot in the MPA program during the time that I was a student uh, was the Challenger explosion. So uh, this event took place, you know, in a matter of seconds. And in that period, so much... um, investment and uh, effort uh, descended into chaos. Uh, In many ways, the same can be said uh, about the Afghan government collapse. Um, You know, it was much more than the mechanical failure of, uh, you know, the spaceship, for example, Uh, though, uh, that was the thing, you know, that was what people remember from this disaster. While in reality, you know, the events and the bad decisions led to that disaster, to the collapse of the Afghan government, sort of long, you know, very, very long time ago. And it's much more complex. Uh, and uh, it's very interconnected with domestic issues, as well as regional and international Uh, considerations and dynamics. From there, let's segue into questions a little bit more tailored towards the MPA program. So how have you reflected what you have learned from the MPA program in your work? What were some of the most helpful things that you learned in the MPA program that you were able to reflect in your time as a public administrator? I think uh, I have learned a lot during the MPA program. I was not able to apply all the things that I learned in the context of my job because uh, that was more security related. But some of the skills that uh, I learned um, during the MPA program, both from you know the professors as well as from uh, other students, US and international classmates and fellow students, um, uh, was to, uh, you know, critical thinking about, uh, you know, a complex issue uh, or how to solve a complex issue and then consider different parts uh, that goes into that issue and then come up with a solution that is uh, inclusive and practical. Um, That was something that... uh, I learned. Uh, The other uh, thing that was very uh, helpful from the MPA program uh, 
for me was to be able to focus on small things. Um, you know, the nature of the MPA program in Binghamton is that they make you, you know, work on small projects. They are not fancy projects, but small issues, you know, community issues that are important, but uh, it's not in the news, you know, in the national news. So that's something uh, that I learned that, you know, it's the power of small steps that you should take that actually matters. So I want to circle back to your role as a policymaker and how that sort of relates back to the MPA program. Was there ever a time where you thought back to your time in the MPA program to solve a problem or come up with a policy? But was there anything from the MPA program you really fell back onto in decision making? Um, yes. You know, I, I took a course with Professor um, Tom Sinclair. If I remember the title of the course correctly, it was Policy Analysis. And during this time, I learned a lot of, uh, you know, skills relate, related scales into, uh, you know, how to develop and then also how to look at policies designed in a way that it can address the problem and, um, you know, make sure that it has positive impact in the society. So some of those methods and skills that I learned in that class uh, actually helped me a lot uh, during my time in Afghanistan to um, you know, work on policies with a team uh, and develop some policies um, in a way that they are based on evidence and data. They are practical. And there was, you know, one instance that uh, based on those methods, I actually realized, you know, we actually realized that uh, maybe the status quo is much better than a new policy. So, uh, let's keep it uh, that way. I also did a, you know, a independent study with Dr. Rubai on, uh, you know, the local governments in Afghanistan, and she was very helpful in terms of providing feedback and, um, you know, in order to make it more practical. When when I was in Afghanistan, I actually used uh, some of the conclusions and finding the findings that I had. So as we start to wrap up the interview a little bit, I want to get into questions that are a little bit more just about you, a little bit more personal. So reviewing the evacuation process, not only for you being an Afghan who had to evacuate the country, but also from the perspective of a public administrator, how do you think international administrators handled the situation? Do you think evacuations were carried out effectively? What was the biggest problem in the international response to the collapse of the government? Do you think, do you think they did the most that they could do? I think uh, it's still, uh, you know, there's a lot of unknowns to the process. So um, I am not sure if we would be able to come up with a, with a, with the right answer for this question. But so far, I, I, I think, you know, the intention was that, uh, evacuations you know should take place for those who were in immediate danger and at risk uh, in Afghanistan and um, I think that's 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 a good intention but uh, in practice uh, there have been issues and we will learn more about 
them uh, in the future, hopefully. And then based on that, we can make a conclusion. But now I think everyone can learn more about being a good public administrator. I think the role of a public administrator is much easier when you're sort of able to sit back and think about the policies. So that's why it was similar to when things are not going well and needing to be a good public administrator. A time like that where international public administrators had this opportunity and this almost duty to evacuate people from Afghanistan, just seeing how they responded to it, it it seemed like their goals in doing so were very well, well well-founded. They were morally good that they wanted to do good for the people of Afghanistan. But again, it's a very, very sudden thing. So working out the logistics of it is very difficult and requires more time and thought than they were able to have. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, what I want to say here is that, you know, public administrators, I think they could benefit more from um, some foresight, you know, developing their foresight capabilities so they can see things in advance. And then, as you said, prepare for it, you know, in terms of logistics and then, you know, the process is managed in a way that is effective and efficient. What is your ideal future for Afghanistan? What what do you think that Afghan public administrators or those of you abroad right now and out of Afghanistan can do to help the country? And are you hopeful that things will improve either under the Taliban or under a new government, maybe after the Taliban? You know, I'm not uh, an idealist, uh, you know, I as much as I like to be, um, but given the on the ground realities of Afghanistan, my hope is that one day we will be able to uh, find um, a way to make sure, you know, to establish a state that is sustainable enough to withstand uh, violent groups and provide basic services and security to the citizen uh, throughout the country. Uh, so that's my hope. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of technicalities uh, that goes into this, you know, into um, forming a roadmap for, for this uh, end state to be achieved. Uh, and I think we have enough lessons learned that will help us uh, in the way. Thank you for tuning into Do Goodwill, a podcast by Binghamton University's Masters of Public Administration program, a podcast dedicated to public service and the folks at the forefront of doing good in our communities. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, or if you're interested in getting your MPA, check out the links in our show notes.